Hello and a very warm welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm James. And I'm Ross. Welcome back, gentlemen. Uh, this time we're talking about Eccleston's Third Symphony, the collection <laughs> from Big Finish known as Lost Warriors. Each story in this triptych is linked to a, an important, timeless monolith of Western culture. Uh, we've got one about William Shakespeare's Macbeth, one about Fritz Lang's Metropolis, and one about ITV's Sunday evening drama, Downton Abbey. <laughs> So unusually uh, for this type of set, we all the stories are set in Earth's past, which is not unusual for the Ninth Doctor stories to be set on Earth because that's like his TV series, but they're all set in the past here. There's no alien planets or present-day stuff. Um, but an interesting selection of stories, I think. Yeah. I, I, it was a nice mix. And some nice reunions in here as well. Um, so we've got uh, Christopher Eccleston reunited with Annette Badland from his TV Slitheen stories. Um, and uh, director Barnaby Edwards was inside the Dalek in the eponymous story Dalek. And I think uh, also in the, uh, the two-part finale as well. So uh, it's nice that uh, nice he's got that link to, to his TV series there as well. So the first story is it's called The Hunting Season, Ross. All right. The hunting season is, uh, yes, it is the standard BBC um, period drama set in Dewberry Hall, where the some um, the doctor shows up to protect the the hall and make you know and and the servants and the people in the household. But there's something mysterious about the lord of the manor, his daughter, or the butler. And the, you, to me, I kept going, oh, I'm watching Masterpiece Mystery, which is where all your detective shows end up in this country. It was more like that, the whodunit. I, I got more out of uh, Hercule Poirot or a Miss Marple out of it. Or or for Julie, you mentioned Downton Abbey, uh, a Godsword Park, because Julian Fellows, who created that. Downton Abbey, create, wrote, the screenplay for Godford Park. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was definitely that, the upstairs, downstairs vibe, but with a little ghost light thrown in. Um, and um, it was neat. I didn't, until you mentioned it, I forgot it was, that was Annette Bandlin playing Mrs. Goose, which is a very, you know, um, PB, uh, BBC drama kind of faux Dick, Dickensian name. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... And I even watched that. You guys have a show over there called Dick Kenzie. And, and yes, it, it was a little overwhelming. It was like, God, man, I just stop with the names. <laughs> but but um, yeah, but this is more a horror movie. And um, and it's got a little mystery to it because, I, I mean, they lean into the butler, you know, the sadistic butler being the bad guy, mm. you know, and they lean into it and you go, OK, it's you know, we know who it is. And then at the end, it's someone else. And, um, and I like, and I like about it is that they're all on the three people who are upstairs are unrepentantly evil. They're bad people. You know, no one learns, learn, I don't, you know, there's none of that. Oh, that, you know, tacked on. Oh, look, all that bad happened. I'm reevaluating my life in the last five minutes of the story. No, they're just, you know, he was a nasty war criminal and he had a thug for a butler and he raised his daughter to be a killer. Yeah, she is rather yeah. bloodthirsty, isn't she? She's the worst of the lot. You really, she's yeah. just, you know. <laughs> and she survives at the end as well. So she is um, sort of half human, um, half bloodthirsty warlike alien. Um, yeah. and, and he's just left um, roaming free at the end. Um, I sort of, sort of imagined her joining the Conservative Party 
um, and, uh, and and that kind of being her uh, <laughs> her story from there on. Or or it's it's perfect timing for her to become a black shirt. Yeah, mm. I mean it's. I mean Mosby would be up and running by in a year or two from here. Yeah, this is, this is, this is 1936, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, fascism is uh, there. So it, it's really timely, too, because, you know, a lot of upper crust people, you know, we had, um, you know, in that time period, well, you know who Charles Lindbergh is, right? Mm-hmm. He was a fascist. He was a straight up fascist and an anti-Semite. So, you know, it's like these, you know, th- that is that change in class. I, this is my least favorite of the set in a lot of ways. Mm. I don't think it sticks the landing. There are moments I like. I like him a great deal in it. Um, and I like the the I, I like uh, Annette Bandling and the young lady who plays the maid. Yeah. They're pretty good. Annette Bandling can do anything, man. It's just <laughs> I, I finally saw us um a De Ber- a Bergerac about two months ago. I'd never seen it. And to see her like at twenty something, it was like because I, I forgot she was in it, so. but I like her in it. I mean, it's an okay story. It's it's good. It has its moments, and but it, it is very by the number. You know, I could see this be a Sylvester McCoy season twenty six. You know that era. Mm. It, it 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 has that feel to it to me, like late eighties Doctor Who, I mean, less so than two thousand and five Doctor Who. Eccleston's at his best when he's. He's basically rubbing people up the wrong way. He 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 gets on so well with the the cook and the maid, but then he turns his nose up at the establishment, and he's he's he gets there's some really nice comedy moments where he, he you know when he's talking about the daughter, he goes, oh you must be so proud, you know, sort of it's just so tongue in cheek. That's what I love about it because he – I don't think people realize that Eccleston is incredibly funny because he plays every joke straight. Yeah. It's that – this. it's a very cynical – it's a little sarcastic. Um, or like when he realizes that it says Brigadier on his – when on the psychic paper it says Brigadier, he goes, oh, that, that – okay. And he – you know, he's happy about it. Mm. You know, and he's just absolute – I love him in his one year on the show because when he want, when he talks to power, it is with – these those type of quick jabs yeah and it's he's cutting them to the quick but we laugh at it so i mean he he picks the piece up a bit i think a lot of the what makes it work is him carry is him carrying it a bit this eccleston's incarnation he's almost like the most working class as well with with his accent his demeanor and everything so coming into that kind of setup of, of these kind of really entitled privileged people and just um, because they think he is a brigadier and a war hero, he can just um, kind of prick their pomposity and uh, and take the mickey out of them so much. You know, in the way that you feel like Pertwee would have just been at home with the uh, with the gentry and would have just been having like cheese and wine with them and wouldn't have cared about the <laughs> the cook yeah. and the trade, but he, it's it's perfect to put him in this. Uh, I, I really like that part of it, and it may, I, I did think it was the daughter. All that pretty much because of her bloodthirstiness when they're hunting and things like that. I thought, yeah, she's going to have been like some kind of foundling or something who, who's really an alien. Uh, so yeah, it did um, it did sort of define my expectations a little bit because I thought when they were saying when the aliens turn up and they keep saying flesh, I thought it was like flesh as in flesh and blood. So it was like 
she's one of us sort of thing and you've taken her that was that was where where my mind was going initially in the play there's, there's a very yeah. strong very strong moral uh, authority to the doctor especially Eccleston's doctor and it comes out in that would be my sort of thread for all three stories is whilst there's a you know alien presence actually there are some pretty nasty humans in there as well and he is very you know quick to say you know they might be aliens they might be you know looking to eat you but actually you're just as bad because of you know and you're right the whole flesh thing it gets misinterpreted and he's like no i need to go and find out what's what's going on um and then when they attack them you know and and end up killing one of them that you know he's 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 absolutely enraged by it because it for him, it's like every alien race. He has that sort of thing where he's like, "I'm not going to judge them until I get to know them." I'm, I'm, you know, these people. We don't know what they're here for, or you know, why they're here. And 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 that's a really good quality for the, for this doctor is that he he gives everyone the benefit of the doubt first. He wants to. He's, he's like an excited little puppy. He's like, I want to know who this who these aliens are. Then he, when he discovers what their motives are and what they're, what they've done, you know, that's when he takes he, he he does his judgment. But he's very much like that with with the daughter, you know, with, with the um, butler as well. You know, the it's quite heavy-handed. I felt with the butler. I I thought it was it started off quite subtle, where he was like, "Oh, let's go and get the thing out of the fire," but then it became a little bit more labored a bit later on that he was really a nasty piece of work um but you, you know you've got Eccleston in the middle of that going well actually I'm, I'm going to sort that out I'm going to sort this out but I'm going to come and I'm going to come back and I'm going to sort that out as well because that's not right he's you know he, he's, he's very good at spotting these things you know when there's someone not doing nice things it may be with the, with the butler with Streatham whether because the daughter um, is so bloodthirsty and uh, Lady Isabel isn't the daughter that she's she's so into violence and stuff. Whether Streatham was doing that to impress her, because I was kind of thinking about it like it was not really clear whether he had fought in the First World War. But if this is 1936. Um, and, and she seems quite young, so presumably he's quite young as well because they're having a relationship that maybe he wasn't old enough um, to to fight in World War One. So to compensate for that, because she's so interested in war and she keeps trying to pump the doctor for stories of, of battles and killing, that he's he's doing that to impress her. That maybe that I mean he obviously is a piece of work anyway. He's not sort of fighting against it, but. Um, yeah, whether that was part of trying to impress her, because he's full of bluster as well, isn't he? When they face the fleshkin, he says, "Come on, I'll take you all on." And then when they come towards him, he, he totally, <laughs> he totally doesn't know what to do. Yeah, I, I think it's also the doctor treats them a certain way because isn't he the ninth doctor and is always conscious of his post-traumatic stress? You know what I mean? That I mean, he's designed to be that guy that comes back from the soldier that's come back from war a little damaged. Um, so he's always, that's kind of his I'm writing wrongs motif, this doctor's motif. Um, and 
the th- he's I think I always get when I listen to it a couple I've listened to it the originally and then tonight is like when he's called the brigadier he likes it but then he kind of thinks about it it's like oh, you know he doesn't he's not proud of being a soldier because he's still you know he's trying to stop people from killing each other because he's you know he just think well we find out later he didn't really do it but mm. you know he's killed all these people yeah and he's, he's we've we've talked about his scarring before when we reviewed some of the other uh, Ninth Doctor stories. And they've kind of, the, the way they've done it, because this is all pre, pre-stories to the, you know, meeting Rose and then meeting the Dalek and then going, like really living out the, the post-traumatic stress and starting to get better. It, it sort of, it, it rears its head occasionally. There's, there's, there's very little talk of the time war in some of these stories. But in this one, this is probably the closest we've come so far to him basically saying, all my people have died. He doesn't say it. He does talk about war. He does talk about, you know, being battle-weary. Um, and there's, you know, the, the the criminals going, oh, I've killed so many people. And it doesn't quite go to the point where I've killed all my people. He, But he, it's there. It, it, it's it's almost to the surface uh, and you're right he is very conscious that he's carrying all that baggage around with him and he it's still there because because he's not met rose yet and he's not started to to sort of exercise that and 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 get it out of his system yeah i think this this set particularly uh particularly suits him as a lost warrior sort of theme everything is He's post a war, isn't it? Um, so the the hunting season is is post World War One, and and post the war that uh, Lord Hawthorne um, has has fought the Fleshkin in, and then um, we see um, the Monsters in Metropolis is is uh, is again after the First World War, uh, and the effect that that had on Germany and its people and economy, um, and the. Uh, the other story is, um, is is Macbeth kind of returning back from from a battle yeah, yeah. as well. Um, so it's uh, it, it's very kind of thematic with the Ninth Doctor. Yeah, I, I prefer. I've liked this. I thought each box set has gotten better. I was not a fan. I really. I'm normally you know big finish gets a lot benefit of doubt, and I wasn't that that first set. I was like, is this what we're getting? Yeah, this is kind of vanilla. I mean, it was a little too, I know, you know, start safe and build up, but I found a lot of it just kind of not, there wasn't, you've got Eccleston, let him, you know, give him a little something to play with. The, the first, and then the second set had some really great stuff in it. Yeah. The the first, the first one we reviewed, it was very timey-wimey and it, it sort of, by the end of the third story, it had reset everything anyway <laughs> oh. so it was kind of like why i mean the idea yeah i know i, I you know it's like a star trek Vo- i'm a big star trek fan and star trek voyager has a lot of episodes where everything resets Absolutely. at the end because they're doing something with time travel and then st- oh. just don't do year it year of hell <laughs> oh yeah year of hell it's which is great except the last oh. that's the only one i kind of give a i give a pass on because it's so good up until but that. i know what you mean that's their favorite thing is at the end it was you know everything is returned back to normal and you, no one remembers, no one remembers. <laughs> everyone just moves on um, <laughs> it's all i mean the, 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 what i would say though and it, it is 
it's just having Eccleston in these stories, although the the first trio of stories I, I didn't particularly like either. There was a sheer joy, as there is in these three stories, of having Eccleston in that role, and he he just does it so effortlessly. I can't even say the word. Yeah, and and <laughs> in this one, you know that the the even the bits you were saying about Annette Bandland. When he's with Annette Badland, and it, you know they've they've faced each other as sort of you know Doctor and uh, Slovene before, but there is this nice comfiness to that when they talk to each other, and um, you know she's brilliant in this, and she's like you know um, when they come over for the meal, and she's like you know this is my kitchen, I don't care whether there's aliens upstairs, and then the Doctor says, oh yeah, and you know they're vegetarian, and she's like, what? <laughs> Where, and I love it. And she, and she has no what's a, she has no idea what the word means. It's great, and it's I love her. I just listened to Box of Delights. Oh yes. Um, oh my God! I've never heard that story. I've never seen the TV version. Anything, and it it's all I listened to for two days. You know. So and and she's amazing in it. She's amazing. She's amazing in anything I've ever seen her. You know, she can turn. She, I've seen her do some some really dramatic, um, you know, performances, but then some really, you know, sort of uh, comedic um, stuff as well. So she, you know, she she fits in so well in this story. And there's that, that weird sort of thing about her reading that story. It's almost like the story that she's reading moves the the story on. It's like she's narrating the story that they're in, which. It's quite strange, but actually works. I think. I wish they had more of yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, she's really good because when it come when it started, I you know, I, I, I this one didn't stick. I mean, I knew it was the Downton Abbey one with the with the the evil general. <laughs> that's all I remembered of it. And I went, oh, that's right. And then that middle in the middle, she has an, another piece of narration, which is wonderful. She could have just narrated the whole thing and then saved some, you know, and. You could have fleshed out things without having, mm. you know, because the plot's a little, t- it's a little light. Yeah. I think it's a lot lighter than the next two because the next two are both so full and, com- and I find wonderfully complex in some ways mm. that, you know. Yeah, this is like a season opener, I suppose, isn't it? Where it's a bit, a bit lighter and, um, uh, you know, kind of get, get you back into the, the, the kind of the groove um this one's written by james kettle um so a relatively new big finnish writer i think um, yeah i didn't recognize him i had to go back and look yeah but he's uh he's absolutely in his element here isn't he yeah i like his this one because never mind because he when i saw that he had done snow in the latest stranded which is one i really liked in that latest stranded box set that was the one that stood out to me that little subtle piece but you know i like it i've liked some of the ones uh, uh, that was the one that jumped out to me when i looked at what he'd done he's only done like four or five mm. which is do we go four or five that's a lot for someone writing for one company it's like no because in the final finale in this is a dorney piece which is i'm always happy about absolutely uh so that takes us to the to the second story mm-hmm. yeah which is yeah, the the curse of Lady Macbeth, and having had the dubious 
pleasure is the right word, I'm not sure, of studying Macbeth in three years of, of different uh, educational <laughs> strands. It was like, we, we've chosen a new text for the year and it's Macbeth. And you're like, oh, we did that last year and the year before. Oh, Jesus. Uh, so when I saw this, I was like, oh, okay, this could be interesting. But yeah, we are uh, off to the kingdom of Murray and uh, the real life, uh, well, in this in this instance, the real life uh, Lady Macbeth, and um, the Doctor as the the Blue Devil. So there's lots of lots of myths and Scottish legends and um, Shakespearean quotes and all, all sorts of things in the mix. When you were talking about the complexity, you've got you've got so much going on. There's some some really sort of fun and subtle wordplay where the Doctor's quoting Shakespearean. Uh, plays, you know, he, he's awestruck to meet the actual Macbeth. You've got Lady Macbeth, who doesn't like Macbeth very much, doesn't like Duncan either. You know, she's she's on a, a one-woman crusade to try and save the kingdom. You know, very powerful character. Whereas, you know, in Shakespeare's Macbeth, she's very powerful, but she is quite obviously quite evil as well. Here you get a more subtle edge to her that that she's doing things out of necessity. She's prepared to fight and she's prepared to, you know, um, sacrifice along the way. But at the same time, it's very much focused on her mother, um, you know, her motherhood, her, her essential... Um, femininity almost in, in this and in the the creature and I said it was going to be difficult for me to describe this but the way I think of it is a bit like this is Shakespeare meets uh Signori Weaver's alien you know and you've got mm -hmm. this 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 weird creature that is sort of taking the children and it's quite dark this of this element taking the children of the kingdom and, and then sort of putting them into a cocoon to try and um, procreate you know it's trying to to use them um and it, and the children are all becoming this this sort of weird half human half alien hybrid um which again lady Macbeth is is trying to rescue them trying to to keep them alive um knowing that everybody's paid this sacrifice um of, of giving their children up so you you have this very sort of dark story there is there are lighter moments and again Eccleston sort of come breezes in at the very beginning you know the TARDIS lands and they're like oh the blue devil and he's like no I'm not I'm really not you know <laughs> but then he's you know he's quite prepared to use the TARDIS to show you know he's like oh shall we have a bit of magic and then he you know uses the TARDIS and everyone goes oh like this and, and there's some there's some great bits where oh he talks about home cinema he uses the and again there's a lot of techno babble in in this so I have to say uh, which sitting alongside Shakespearean dialect is and, and Scottish uh, dialect is really weird when and then he's like oh yeah I'm going to use my magic torch to put home cinema we've just invented home cinema and then she later says it and he's like really must get you to not use that <laughs> back in the you know in the early sort of 
uh, it's sort of ten. It's the year ten thousand, isn't it? Ten thousand five. Yeah. So, you know, she's talking about home cinema and psychic projections and you know telepathic telepathic shields and things like that <laughs> next to all this sort of you know folklore and uh, you know all these other things so it's it is um it's an interesting story and i have to say it it sparked me to actually go and have a look a little bit more about the real lady Macbeth, not yeah. the shakespearean one because you know that i know that's where he got his inspiration but obviously there's a lot lot of difference yeah and he took his inspiration for someone else wrote a story so he you know he he was you know all artists are thieves and one of the greatest artists of all time was a huge thief he just took other people's stories and adapted it when people i love it when people go why are they remaking that it's like crap shakespeare was remaking shit exactly you know, he was, he, Hamlet, he, you know, he took that story and adapted it. He read the histories and adapted them. That it, Shakespeare, Macbeth is my favorite Shakespeare piece as someone who studied theater a little bit. Um, it's the one that, yeah, would you ever want to be in that? Yeah, because there are so many freaking great parts and they're all good um, and stuff like that. But I've always liked the, you know, the hit that I, it was neat to see the historical. It was nice to have Nev uh, McIntosh. Yeah. I, she can. I like to hear her in her natural accent. Um, she's she's just great. Me, Victoria, my podcasting partner, has a huge crush on her too. It just, it's it's, it's she's great and she's good in this. And she, she, you know, I would this would have made a good TV episode. Yeah. Yes, you know, it was the guest historical. This was really because I thought the plot was complicated enough that it made it not only entertaining but a little more interesting. She has such a you know, brilliant relationship right. with Eccleston in this. I mean, the two of them together. I mean, there's a lot of other things happening, but they do spend a, a large amount of time together talking. And he, he just, he just like, I don't know what it is, but they have this chemistry during this this story, and uh, not romantic chemistry, but they just really, you know, he's like, I want to help you. Um, she gets past the whole blue, you know, the, the blue devil thing quite quickly. She becomes, you know, she takes him into the castle and everyone's going, oh, my God, you brought him in. And, and she's like, no, he's here to help. And she's very sort of like, unless you help my son, who's seen this creature and gone mute, I'm going to kick you out, you know, or I'm going to kill you. It, 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 she she is still very much, you need to do what I, I ask you to do. But again you know going back to Eccleston he has that way of breaking people down and and showing that he's on their side and I there's a there's some really lovely moments where he's talking to the mute son as well and his tone changes and you can hear Neve respond to that as well because he obviously shows a, a great deal of care for the son and it, 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 there's some really subtle performances in here as well which are really nice I mean, do you? It, it it felt like me to me when I was listening to it. You could a big finish could have gone a box that takes place between this and the next one where she travels, like the Mary Shelley thing, because she plays the part of the of of the companion. In some of those moments, at yeah. times, I'm like going, "Okay, that's a Sarah Jane kind of moment. That's a Rose kind. You know what I mean? I could see the companion doing it because she accepts. You know, a good companion always accepts what the doctor says." Um, almost immediately because there is that that interpersonal connection 
when they design a good companion and doctor. Um, it's kind of like the Mary Shelley in the Paul McGann yeah. audios. You buy it. And or the Mary Shelley in the Via Diodata. Mm-hmm. She's, you know, okay, you're saying you're, you're time travelers. Okay, I'm going to take you at your word. How do you save my child? Because I, the, I, the, the, the scary stuff is really going on. So it's easy, you know, they kind of go, well, yeah, there's a monster. So if I'm going to believe that there's a monster in the house, I'm going to believe that you're a time traveler and it can help me. So what do you need? Yeah, it's great that for all she's very superstitious. She's very pragmatic as well. So mm-hmm. um, the the bit when she, she noticed that the doctor burnt his hand slightly um, when there's a fire and she says to somebody, he's he's not a demon or anything he's you know if he if there's any trouble we can kill him he's he's vulnerable sort of thing so uh you know she she can accept all the the technology or to her indistinguishable from magic type stuff um but at the same time she's watching him and learning from him and uh yeah it's as as you say fantastic dynamic between the two of them And, and you do learn a lot about the historical lady Macbeth, which which isn't in the uh, in the Shakespeare play, but it's great the way that it plays with that. I think right from the start when um, she's with the two other women and um, they're they're trying to like kind the three of three witches uh, at the beginning of Beth, isn't it? Yeah, they're, they're trying to help. Isn't the she one? Of, I mean, are they inferring that like she's one of the three witches? I mean, in some Mac- productions of Macbeth, she is. Yes. She is cast. She is cast yes. as a witch because you know it changes over the centuries, and that you know in some productions. You know, that's a quick double up. Yeah. Yeah. I felt it was just like playing with the listener expectation that you think, oh, here we go. Here's the three witches uh, as the play opens. Um, like you, it is my favorite Shakespeare as well, actually, uh, uh, Macbeth. I I did it twice, I think. I did it, I think, at the A level and then in, in, in my degree. But yeah, I, I really like it. I just recently watched the. Um, the Cohen uh, one? The, yeah, yeah. Um, we, I. I I want to see it. I'm waiting. I just, I don't have Apple TV, so I'm waiting for it to be available in another format. Well, I got to because I love there. If anyone was put on this planet to play that part, mm-hmm. it's him. Because terrific. And Francis yeah. McDermott's terrific yeah. as, um, she, as, as well. It's, it's brilliantly cast. Um, I got a new iPhone, so I got three months trial on mm-hmm. Apple TV. Uh, so it, it coincided really, really well for me. I like it's in black and white too. I like, I preferred in bla- the versions that I've liked have been more in black and white. We studied in high school. My um, English teacher decided that we would do Macbeth and he showed us the Roman Polanski oh, version. We saw that. Yeah. It, yeah. We saw it in high school, which in 1983 was highly mm-hmm. inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> and then the bay, he showed it every year to his seniors and he would roll the head, you know, at the end when, the head's yeah. cut off. You see what the 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 eyes of the head rolling down the stair. You see what Macbeth with head yeah. sees, and when it's being held up, he re, he would run it backwards. Okay. He go, okay, we watch it. This is the payoff. We're gonna watch that scene backwards. And you <laughs> Eccleston played uh, played Macbeth yeah, for the yeah, RSC as well, which. Um, yeah, because it was on the iPlayer here at the start of in the first lockdown. Who was his lady Macbeth? Is that? Oh, I can't remember now. Uh, he did. This, a, he did a piece of Shakespeare with Jody, but it wasn't Macbeth. No, I don't was think it? it was. Um, she, she definitely was. Was that Coriolanus? That one. Um, it was another really violent one. Right, I wasn't aware of that. Uh, um, yeah, Neem, no, they, they know Neem each other Kuzak. from. Huh? Neem Kuzak. Oh, Neem Kuzak. Yeah. Okay. 
That's yeah, I kind of vaguely recognize yeah, that. Yep. A good Macbeth always said it's a double act. If you don't have a good, you know, and I think that's kind of what we see here. And I like how they make Macbeth sympathetic, you know, that they, they in this, they kind of, they world build. I'm become big, I'm big on looking at world building right now. And when I'm looking at stuff, I just reviewed a comic book that was like, wow, they took time to world build. And they do because you get to know about their, this lady Macbeth and the Macbeth in this story. Sewar, Saward, Seward, they um, or whatever at the real name. You know, they kind of go. You, you, she tells you, "I don't like him because of this and that and this." And then, you know, when he comes in, he goes, "I know you don't like me for that. I won't do that." You know, you're my wife. You know, I'm going to honor the, you know. And they come. They, she, you know, she makes a change. Oh, I've misjudged this man. Yeah. And then you know? saying, like, I know that you're not a murderer. I know you're a, a soldier and a warrior, but you're not a murderer, which obviously plays against the, uh, you know, the, how he becomes a murderer in the, in the play. Yeah. And that, that, that a soldier like the doctor sees a difference between a soldier and a murderer. Because that is a fine, that's a fine line. And some people don't see it. That's a, um, but it, it, Macbeth's reluctance in the play initially to, to murder Duncan, although he's, uh, you know, he's a sort of uh, storied warrior, isn't he? He's, um, he's, 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 he has to be really persuaded to uh, to do the killing. Um, and then the other thing that uh, that it plays with Lady Macbeth's reputation, where she says that she's killed all the foundlings, um, which is like in the play, there's the um, there's that imagery when she talks about like dashing the baby's brains yeah. out, isn't there? And, and then that kind of thing. And you think, well, yeah, she will have done that because she's awful. And then, but she hasn't, she's kept them all and uh, nobody knows they're there because they haven't got mouths and they can't cry. So they're quiet. And, um, it's, it's great the way it unpeels. Yeah, they like made that, garments, it? hadn't they, for them to try and keep them alive. And even though they couldn't eat or, or, or you know, do anything, yeah. they, they it created these garments to, to cover them. Um, and, and again, you, you do get that flip side because the doctor's like, hang on a second, you've, you've killed them all. But then he knows, you know, he knows that she sees his, uh, she, he sees her maternal instinct and he knows automatically that she hasn't. And then sort of obviously finds out um, afterwards. So again, you, the, there's that, as I say, he's very good at spotting humans that are monsters. You know, it, it's mm. um, when they try and kill the creature as well. It, 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 there's, you know, it's always the doctor who's who's that moral compass who says, "Well, actually, this is right, or this isn't. This isn't." I like the line at the start as well when. Um... The doctor mentions Macbeth and uh, and Lady Macbeth or Gruach, isn't yeah. it? Gruach. Uh, she's in this. She says, "Don't mention that name to me." And the doctor goes, "I thought it was a bit early for all that." Which obviously like the superstition oh, about yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, about not saying Macbeth. Um, is that a superstition over there as well, Rosh? You saying like kind of? Uh, oh my God! I am. Yes, it is. And one time I said it. I was in a play called Miss Fire Miss Firecracker, and I don't come on until act two and we're sitting in there. And I said the name in the dressing room and one of the actresses lost her ever effing mind. <laughs> I mean, just lost it. And the, the other actor in the show is playing um, Popeye. If you know, it's uh, the, the movie's an early Holly Hunter movie. It's about a homely girl in the South at a, and there's a carnival. 
and she enters the beauty pageant, the Miss Firecracker pageant. And I played the the syphilitic carny, alcoholic carny. Um, but I said, you know, I said the name, and she, this actress left, lost it, and we're in this old town hall in this small city, small town next to Richmond, and the actor turned me goes, you need to go outside, turn around <laughs> three times, and spit over your right shoulder. And I said, I am not effing doing that. <laughs> I gave up Christianity and that makes way more sense than that. And he goes, she will not shut up until you do it. And I had to, I had to go about five minutes later. She would not shut up. And I had to go out back in this playground and do it. I'm just like going. And she was, I mean, literally terror, terror. Actors are incredible. Like athletes, you know, I'm a baseball fan. Baseball fans are known for their weird, you know, if I'm eating fried chicken and I'm on a hitting streak, I eat fried chicken yeah. before every game. Actors are worse. Absolutely <laughs> the most idiotic superstition. And I have some as a – I was a stage manager. I uh, I always do the same thing when I go and tell my actors plays. I always say the same thing. All right, go break legs. <laughs> uh, you know, and that's it. But And I, if I forget to do it, I'm like, something's yeah. falling down. So, but yeah, it's, it's a actors, it, 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 Shakespeare lends itself to that kind of thing. A lot of it comes from people who did Shakespeare. I think a lot of those superstitions come from those touring companies of Shakespeare. I read a book on um, all, it was the history of the interpretations of Hamlet. And it was amazing the number of ways it changes from generation to generation, basing on the politics and the social norms and how he is crazy. He's not crazy. He is this. The king becomes, the, in some areas, the king is the hero. And, he's, and Hamlet's the villain of the piece. But all those traveling companies, you know, like the, in this country, you all know who John Wilkes Booth is, right? Yes. His father and brother are two of the greatest Shakespearean actors in the history of this country. Still, they are revered as they were of their generation. They were our Barrymore or Gilgood or Olivier. And he was, if he hadn't have been crazy and shot a president, he would have been thought of the same way. He's like, Ed, uh, was it Edward Keene? Who's a, I think, your 19, early 20th century or late 19th century yeah. Shakespearean superstar. But yeah, so I think that's where all this, I think the superstition comes from these plays. And that's why Macbeth has the most of it, that you can't see it. You can't say the name. I'll say it anytime. I'm a Scott. I think people go, well, it's, I'm a Scott. They're not, it's not going to hurt me. Mike, Mike, I'm, a, I'm 50% Scott. There's a, there's, there's a brilliant yeah. uh, point where um, they question Eccleston's accent as being Southern. Because <laughs> there is a thing where he goes, "Oh, I'm back in Scotland." Because there's been quite a few episodes now in the in the sort of big finish, which have been set in Scotland, and he does remark about it at the beginning of the story. He's like, "Oh, is this about the?" the is that because they're using so many Scottish writers? The the one, the seventh Doctor Ace one, I loved it. Yeah, with the brig. Oh, the Grey Man of the Mountain. Yeah, uh, I really like that one. Yeah, really a lot. Great um, Christmas story that wasn't it. Yeah, I've, um, I because it came out. I think the Christmas before last. I listened to it again this Christmas. Uh, it's uh, yeah, kind of on my uh, on my playlist along with um, Blood on oh, Santa's yes, Claw. Oh uh, yeah, I love that one. It was a fantastic Christmas. I, think, I, I don't know whether it's yeah. because I, I mean most of the 
the sort of 2005 onwards, you know, who is set in London but filmed in Cardiff. So you just, you know, now they're just like, let's go set, because obviously with Jodie's era, it's been more Sheffield and then more recently Liverpool. So we've now got... Yeah, I, which I liked is like, come yeah. on, land in a different so, city. So now we've got a lot in Scotland. You know. <laughs> just to balance it out. Hopefully they'll keep going further north to where I live. That'd be great. <laughs> Oh, move move the film into Manchester. Doesn't BBC have a big studio system they up do. there too? That's where mm-hmm. most of those. Yeah, it wasn't that the first, the second place they put studios after London. Yeah. I don't know your TV history. For us, ours has always been Calif- New York, California, or Vancouver. So there is there's a huge media city now in in Manchester, but they've the new um, well the 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 company that's going to be producing it. Uh, the new series um, is based in Cardiff, and they've got studios in Cardiff. So, it's still going to. Is that where they're shooting like My Dark Materials yeah. and stuff? Okay, which is one if their if their production values are half of what My Dark mm-hmm. Materials are, you know. But you got three women who just got paid a lot of money to have someone else mm-hmm. pay for this. So I'm, you know, um, <laughs> so it. But I do. There's a lot more Scott. There's a lot. There have been a lot of Scottish stories in 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 Big Finish the last few years, which is fine. And you have and I mean you have Neve McIntosh is in a bunch. I like the Pat and Astro Gang ones. I like the three of them. You know the stories sometimes aren't the greatest, but they're funny and she's she's amazing. Mm-hmm. I think she's great. She does a she does a lot of heavy lifting in this in this one. Mm-hmm. And it was neat that they used her a recognizable voice. You know, once you become like, she's a regular, she's got her own series. Sometimes they don't really, well, they're going to think yeah. you're Vastra, you know, they're going to think you're Lady Vastra. I don't, I think she is brilliant in this. And I know it would worry, you know, I'm not saying that, that they would do that, but if they cast someone who wasn't as good as her in this role, that it might be slightly lost because you've got so much going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've you've got the alien story, but you've got the, the historical setting as well. There's there's a lot to take in, and you're right. She, she she covers a lot of ground when she's talking about you know she she along this along the way within the story, she's narrating the history of the Macbeths as well. So she's sort of telling you about it's God. It, she's so you know, good she's in telling it. you about her her previous husband. Um, you know how he died and how she, you know, how she married Macbeth. And then you, you get a little bit more from Duncan, who's basically saying, you know, I've tried to keep her as the queen. So she was married before. Now she's married again. She's going to become queen. And it, but a lot of it is it, it, when she pauses for breath in the rest of the action, she's like, okay, so let me tell you a little bit more about my history. See, so you get that as well as, all the other elements that are going on. And, you know, in a 50-minute episode, 55-minute episode, is a lot to pack in, you know. Um, I, I mean, the the resolution at the end, mm, maybe a little bit. Uh, uh, yeah. You forgive it because it's getting there is, yeah. so much, is so good, I think, you know. But it, it, the other character I really liked was, was Kincaid as, um, as yeah. her father. This is David Rental. I thought his performance was was brilliant. Um, but listening to it a second time, you really see the shift from before and after he's possessed. Yeah, 
by the Fuah, uh, Fuath, and um, he's so because he uh, he's, he's got scenes where he's talking to his mute grandson, um, and obviously there there isn't there's no actor there like they didn't get somebody in just not to speak or anything. So, um, but he's really really good and he's sort of kindly and he's he's telling him about things as well which is he's also filling in some of the backstory and then how he changes into that kind yeah. of iago like character of trying to sow discord between macbeth and his wife and between the doctor and the macbeths and um yeah i thought, I thought he was excellent as well and then and, and obviously when he's like full-on possessed at the end and, and um, playing the alien the, the his range mm. across the story was brilliant yeah i like that turn at the end he's really good because i'm like when he's good and I was I was digging his voice. He had a very nice voice. I like a good, you know, some people's voices are just built for acting. And I was digging it and I was like, okay, this is good. And then the turn went, oh, that's why he's in yeah. this. Because, you know, it's not doing a lot of heavy lifting that up until he does that turn. And that turn is so subtle as to not be, jar- to not jar us and make the fact that he has been possessed all that more painful because he wasn't, you know, he'd loved his daughter. He loved his grandson, blah, blah, blah. And then now he's a monster. I liked him a lot. I didn't, I don't know that actor. Is it mean, is he famous at all? Or um, you guys have ever heard of him before? I I didn't recognize the name um, or anything like that, but uh, no, I I thought, uh, yeah, just a a really good character. It was weird with the mute son. Uh, There was, there was an audible sigh every time the son was spoken to. I don't know if you picked up on that. There was a pause, and then there was like a breath, and then they carried on. It was, it was, it was rather than just sort of like say, oh, you know, he doesn't speak, it, he was spoken to, and then there was a reaction, and then you, they carried on. It was, it, was, it was quite an interesting way of doing it. Um. Mm because the doctor speaks to him quite a few times and goes, you know, are we doing the right thing? Or, you know, they talk about the red crayon and did you set light to the, to the uh, tower? And, um, you know, the, the, listening to the recording again today, I didn't pick up on it the first time, but there is this, like a sigh or a, or a breath before they move on. Yeah. It absolutely feels yeah. like there's a yeah, character I mean. there. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is, is, is yeah, quite a quite a trick, isn't it? When, yeah. when it's a mute bag, it's an audio. Yeah, yeah. I just IMDb uh, Kincaid, and he if you've played a video game, you've heard his voice. It's a lot. It's a boatload. It's like three quarters of what he's done is video game voicing. Mm. Interesting. So. I find that a lot with American actors. Sometimes there's always like a video game at the bottom of their filmography early on it's like oh okay how did you feed yourself before you got you know your first good job (laughs) better than waiting tables so uh my victoria her brother-in-law does video game voices oh cool he does um he did nightwing for one and then the the final story in this set is monsters in metropolis um which sees the doctor arrive during filming of metropolis Um, But to his surprise, the famous robot is being played by a Cyberman. So the Ninth Doctor finally gets to feature alongside the second most famous Doctor Who monsters, the Cybermen. Uh, I think this was my favorite story in this collection. 
Um, the initial, I mean, the Doctor's excitement of arriving on a film set um, when he's parked the TARDIS in, in the prop store and he likens it to to Momi, the, the Museum of Moving Image, which really took me back to the 90s when um, I just used to read about this in Doctor Who magazine or like TV Zone and it was absolutely desperate to visit their Doctor Who exhibition and uh, uh, never, never, never got to go and see it, just kind of living so far away and stuff like that. It was, um, it was difficult. The closest I got was seeing Tom Baker um, walking around it in the introduction to the, the Shard of VHS. Um, so, so that was a really a, a cool kind of, uh, kind of in-joke there, wasn't it? Um, and the new Cyberman design mm. on the cover art is absolutely... Someone make that happen in a yeah. show come on come on russell you listen to this stuff yeah the good thing about russell coming back is he he likes yeah. all doctor who medium mm-hmm. he he gets all the big finish he's always he always gets the magazine he gets the figures i loved his picture when they announced him coming back it was he's sitting on by his desk and there's like so many baftas they're like double stacked on his mantelpiece because they're just like so many and they're probably dusty as hell because he just <laughs> just shoves them up there a couple fam- or using them as doorstops i've heard famous actors using their oscars some people more than one uses have them in their bathroom you know but but on either side is nothing but um eagle moss oh, stuff got, he's got a huge it's like all the tardis oh. consoles all the daleks yeah. yeah so you're like going okay he's one of us you know and um and I love this design. That design, it popped it because I, when the first set came out, I didn't really like, you know, I was like, eh, I'm not going to like this series. Am I going to find it? And the second one was better and this one was better. But that, that vision, I love the Mondasian design. It is over the years has grown and it is that it's kind of like a nice halfway point between that and yeah. the invasion design a little bit to me. And I it's got the body horror. Yeah, the less bulky Cybermen, I think, can look better. And also the the sort of beaten up um kind of Cybermen, like the other ones in the um in the underhenge, yes. uh in the uh, the Pandorica opens. Yeah. I love those ones where they um they kind of fall into pieces and they're a bit rusty and stuff. I think they really they really suit that look. And this one looks like it's obviously been through the wars and uh, and that's why it's in the situation it's in. Um I just want to say Nick Briggs' performance as well, I thought was was fantastic uh, yeah. as is really struggling with being ordered to kill against its, its wishes and then the scene that they get together at the end is fantastic and and made me think of of dalek again where um he, he does a, a terrific performance against christopher Eccleston and, and billy piper as a sympathetic monster this there's quite a few comparisons yeah. with this and dalek isn't there i mean i, I mean mentioned it a little while ago about his post-traumatic stress you know after the time war seeing the dalek really triggers him but here we've got the cyberman so it doesn't have the same emotional impact on him it's kind of like you know cybermen are dangerous so step away from it but when he starts to realize that the cyberman isn't a usual cyberman you know that the yeah. inhibitor's not working. They don't call they don't call out the inhibitor, they, do they? They don't. I don't they, think they, ever but they say talk it. about um it talks about the the, the 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 Cyberman having like um more human like you know, sort of more humanity than than 
to cyber pro programming and and when he starts talking about not wanting to kill he's like that's not that's not a usual cyberman you know he describes the cybermen quite well sort of calling them ruthlessly efficient and can't understand why no one wants to be like them he almost calls them like the borg he says resistance is useless like rather than futile but it is the same mm. sort of yeah. it, it evokes the same sort of memory of certainly uh, um you know the, the borg's first appearance in uh next generation that sort of you know we we're not necessarily evil we just want to assimilate everything around us to make us yeah it's just what we just do who we are and what we do and and i like going back to what you said about nick briggs the voice as well is very subtly different as that programming is broken and the the final scene really gives me goosebumps you know it it just you have the doctor and the cyberman watching metropolis and the cyberman says thank you for granting my last request you know the cyberman says this film is beautiful and it, it, it's such a you know the doctor's mourning for the cyberman wanting to to die which again going back to my my thing about the theme is not necessarily that the monsters are the monsters it it it's the, the human mm. controller. And the reason why the Cyberman wants to die is because other humans will want to use it. You know, and you've got this background of, you know, we've just been talking about the First World War. You've got the background of fascism starting to, to you know, to uh, rise in Germany at this time. So, so you've got this sort of story where, the Cyberman, who you would normally think of as the villain, is saying, I don't want to be part of that. I don't want to be used as a killing machine. And what I see around me, that's that's what's going to keep happening. Can see, you know, the political, social, political thing that's going on around it and go, I don't want to be part of that. Which is really, really quite powerful. And even even wider than that, like he's there's nowhere yeah. that he can go. Um, you know, the doctor even the doctor says, you know, I can even take you off the planet. And uh, Simon's like, there's just evil everywhere. You know, this is this is the state of the universe. You know, somebody could find me and use me for uh, for nefarious deeds. So yeah, it's 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 quite pessimistic um, in, in its outlook like that, isn't it? And then at the end when the doctor goes back and he says, you know, like the, the message of this film doesn't work and, and nobody learns from it. And, uh, cause often particularly in Dr. Who, the, the power of stories is, uh, is celebrated, isn't it? Especially, especially in Stephen Moffat, uh, you know, that was a yeah. theme I really liked in it. Um, but this is like, you know, there's nothing that is going to stop, uh, what's happening and it's it's just going to keep happening everywhere for all time so yeah i think and doesn't i mean moffat does it uh, some and chibnall does it everybody in modern who all the showrunners in modern who have done it is the as yeah. us as the monster mankind mm -hmm. as the monster but it's really in i mean davies hits on it in the in the first season of like we don't use the word monster yeah. they're creatures they're aliens. They're not nothing. There are no monsters because, you know, there are no, it's like the thing, there are no villains in a piece. The villain doesn't think he's a villain. He doesn't think he's evil. He's just, his right is different than our right. Mm 
and it's right for him. Um, so it, I like, I like that he, they, that they kind of do, I don't want to say homage, but they kind of take the Dalek yeah. formula and use it. And in some ways, I mean, I love Dalek. I think it's one of the best Dalek stories ever, but I like this softer ending with the Cybermen that there is a human inside a Cyberman. There was a person that is the base uh, component of all Cybermen is, is yeah. a human being of some sort. And, and I think it's, we've seen Cybermen dying and we've seen it played for sympathy, but I think this one is, I, it is that, that final scene is amazing. Mm-hmm. And this is one of my favorite. I mean, I, this one blew me away. This story blew me away because again, Briggs, what he can do with a voice modulator and still give a performance, a huge, really deep performance. And I think in kind of wasn't that he was, that Eccleston respected him as an actor, kind of how he got him to come in. He goes, you know, I write these things. I do the Dalek voices, buddy, you know, and that Eccleston had a respect for Nick Briggs as an actor because he was on set. He was acting the Daleks for them. And there's a, you know, and I think he does give a, a great performance. I was listening to another podcast talking about, um, man, um, uh, Daleks take Manhattan, which I don't really like. And they talked about it so positively and they brought up how he can have a conversation with himself as, as three different Daleks and they're three completely different characters and you can close your eyes and know which one's speaking. And, and I think on this one, he, it's, I think it's one of the best ones he's ever performance he's ever done as any monster. Absolutely. Yeah, because it's just I like the the Cyberman becomes a full grown character. It do, it does, and, and you feel empathy for the Cyberman, which is very unusual for you know for a creature that's supposed to be have no emotions whatsoever. You do feel empathy that it's it's come to this conclusion, you know that it um, the scene where it breaks its programming as well and when it's ordered to kill and it, it it's just like keep saying please don't order me to kill please don't make me kill um and and it's it's really sad i mean the scene where you think he's, he's killed the doctor but then the doctor reveals later on that the, the cyberman let go at the last moment so the doctor could feign that he died and then come back and you know, sort of things out at the end. I, I just think there's some really nice bits, and, and the, the Cyberman, in some cases, is, in some respects, has got more personality and range than some of the other characters in the story. Yeah. Um, uh, the guy playing the director is pretty, he's not one note, but it's just most of it's coming from. Eccleston, the guy that found the Cybermen yeah. in the Cyber, you know, in the Cybermen himself. And um, I forget one of the female leads, but it is uh, one. It's a good story. It's a perfect setting. I mean, it is like, wow, why didn't anyone ever think about this? Because this is just really I saw it and went, oh, Cybermen, Metropolis, <laughs> duh. You know, there's I mean, Hinchcliffe and Holmes. Mm-hmm. Why didn't you come on, man? You stole that. Uh, I say, I'd never seen Metropolis. It's one of those things that I'd always meant to watch, and I, I watched it on the back of 
uh, listening to this um, and um, because I, I kind of probably knew what what generally you know if you haven't seen it, which is yeah. just, just the scene with the robot um, standing up. But yeah, it's I mean it's absolutely terrific for for the time that it was made. I mean, so coming up on a hundred years old. And the the effects and the model work and, and oh, it's, it's amazing! It's amazing. When I was a kid, um, um, they would uh, over at the Kennedy Center because I grew up like about ten miles from Washington D.C. They like when they redid um, certain black and white movies, they would have a full orchestra do the score, wow. and you would go and see this movie with the the symphony that's stationed in the Nagat, I forget what it's called, but there's one at, at the Kennedy center and they would do it with big projections. They did it with Napoleon, the 1924 French film, Napoleon that mm. was projected using three projectors when it was originally. And it was in chroma key, weird chroma key kind of thing. And it just been found and Francis Ford Coppola's father scored it. And he came in and conducted the orchestra, mm. but they did that with Metropolis too. My brother went and saw it and said, I went, how was it? He goes, it was mind blowing. Is yeah. you sat there and the music was the dialogue, you know. So it's a beautiful film. I've never seen. I haven't seen it since it's been cleaned up and remastered yeah. in the last ten or fifteen two, years two for its centennial. It just got just got cleared up, cleaned up recently, right? The different versions of it because they, they, yeah. I mean, the, oh, the, the original them, yeah. was like almost three hours long. The the, the latest restoration is. Almost that length. I think it's, yeah, they found a lot. They of found it. a lot but, of it because stuff released goes it missing. sort of like yeah. an hour and a half long at one point, which was just what was left. Mm. I think that's yeah. what I probably saw as a kid on, you know, the artsy public broadcasting channel that would show it was yeah, the super they, trimmed down one. They found a lot of material in Buenos Aires in 2008 and were able to restore it. So I think the one I watched was about two and a half hours uh, that I watched mm. recently. Um, um, options to fill in, you know, some of the uh, some of the missing. I, I have a. I hate when I hear that. I'm a big Capra fan, and he did a version of Lost Horizons, which is stunningly beautiful. But there's about three. They they chopped it up because it was a little <laughs> too socialist. Because it was incredibly socialist. Um, so they cut out some scenes, but they don't have the scenes. So, but they have some of the audio. But they, well, you know, so there's, bad. yeah, they just had a little clip, but it was neat. It was neat to see. It. And I, I knew that movie back and forward, and there was like 20 minutes. I love seeing them rediscover this stuff, you know, especially like in the, an older film. I suppose this, but, is, this is where Metropolis like, is a good fit for it, Doctor it's Who very, as well, because we've got, <laughs> we've got missing episodes along those lines. Would they, I mean? Would you think this would translate to TV? I th I think this story would. I, I I'd love to see that side yeah. that that Cyberman on the image in this story. Um, yeah, I think it's one of the best designs of Cyberman I've ever seen. I mean, it is. It's up there. It's the only person I think captures body horror like that is Jeff. You know that, and that's and that's why I'm really a big fan of when they brought the Mondasian back in modern who because that it's surgical gauze yeah. that that's what's wrapped in. So that made it made you kind of go. And I never noticed that the hands were made to look yeah. petrified, putrefied a bit, even in the sixties one. But yeah. I think this is that happy medium between the first and the second design. 
Yeah, I suppose it has to be slightly metallic to fit the Metropolis uh, kind of yeah. look. I suppose yeah. in terms of Metropolis, I was, I was watching those bits, thinking about the Sideman being in. The idea is that the that the inventor uh, is it Rotvang that he is um, he's trying to recreate his lost love, and that's why the the robot is quite feminine. As the doctor yeah. says, she's got hips and everything. <laughs> so I'm not sure if that would have fit as well. But then the uh, the robot is is turned to look like. Um, the uh, the Marie isn't it or Maria who's the um, who's the sort of female character in it. But when um, when the uh, when he unveils uh, to his former love rival, he said, oh, "I've brought her back <laughs> as a robot," and he pulls the curtain back. It reminded me a bit of Kane <laughs> in Dragonfire, you know, when there's that uh, that really um, basic statue. <laughs> statue of his lost love, and she goes, "Look, it's perfect likeness and stuff." Like that. <laughs> I, I, I would love there? to see this. <laughs> Visually, I mean, I, I would imagine this could be one of you know. I know uh, Doctor Who's not really done it, but certainly, certainly other programs have, have done experimentation with different types of episodes, and this would be a great one to be black and white. Yeah, I like it when you do. I mean, it would work that way, and to play with the, um, you know, I know shows end up having house styles, which is fine. But the joy of Doctor Who yeah. is that every week you end up somewhere else. You know, and you you know, yeah, you you can skip genres, and I think it succeeds the most when it leans into that. I think that's why I kind of like. I think the last, I think the McCoy era has for me, at least in the special, the second season, you have the you have ghost light, yeah. you have weird stories, and uh, ghost light, Paradise Towers, um, um, yeah, Happiness Patrol. Greatest show in the galaxy. You can tell any story. So go at it. You know, I don't think we'll ever see a Doctor Who musical because hopefully that, you know, that fad has died know. out. Um, and I don't mind because I like yeah, the Buffy amazing. musical a great deal. I can watch that one. But most of them, are, you know, I'm a bad theater person. I'm not a big musical theater person. I, I like a good one, but I don't go out to see it. But this is one you could experiment. I'd like to see, you know, and, you know, it's, you know, right. Davies went to Big Finish before, you know. He went and hired people who wrote Big Finish stories he liked. He rewrote them like he does. I, I've got hope for his own mental health. He's not doing that now. Got this next time, but you know, this yeah. is a one that you could do so much with, and to intercut it with, you know, do a little Forrest Gumping with it, with some of these remastered, you know, so you can get clips from, you yeah. know, the movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And put, you know, put whatever the next doctor is in the background of a scene at the end. You could see him and the robot are sitting there and he's in, you know, that doctor's in costume. That would be true. They did a tiny bit of that, didn't they, with the 11th doctor with... With uh, Laurel and Hardy, yeah. Laurel and Hardy, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that would be great to see something like that. Perfect. Great. So, yeah, so for me, my favorite... Ninth Doctor set yet, and and Monsters in Metropolis, my my favorite Ninth Doctor audio story, I think. So yeah, I've liked the second and third one a great deal. There's a, there are a couple stories in the second one I like, but this set really, it's I'm I'm sold on it. And they, there's one more for this set, series, and then they do it there. He's doing another series of four sets, I believe. Yeah, the next one is Old Friends with um with oh, the, Misa uh, Brig. Yeah, I read did. a. Yeah, I read a, a blog of somebody goes, is it right? Is he really meeting the brig? It's like, yeah, in my mind, I can see Nick Courtney. Jack Coleshaw sounds just like him. You know, it's a, it's a, you know, 
But, you know, it'd be I like that because, you know, I'm I'm enjoying the recasting. It's not bugging me. So I'm kind of excited ninth because I could see I could see Eccleston in like a robot kind of story or, you know, the green death or something like that, running around, being indignant, and, you know, <laughs> and arguing with the brig. You know, so that's exciting. Yeah. Who else? Is there other? Is he the only old friend he's meeting in that one? No, there's a, there's a few, isn't there? There's oh, hang on, I shall have a look. But yeah, I know because um, it's got a picture of the brigadier on the front of it. Um, trying to think of who else was in it. I think the guy from the unit audios. Um, yes, that's it. But it, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, oh, the know. one that's got supposedly part Auton, that character. Yeah, Warren Brown, isn't it? Yeah. No, uh, he's yeah. the one that pops around. He's the one that was in the bodyguard, and was yeah. the cop in um, the Jody episode with the the astronaut and the cop were married in the plastic. Yeah. He's not in a lot of the unit ones because he's so busy doing other stuff. So they write him out and he's come back and played the same characters in a couple other things. I think he was Luther's sidekick as well in in, uh, the first case. That's it. That's where I knew him from. He was Luther's partner. So, yeah. Sam Bishop. Is that the character's name? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, he disappeared. He comes and goes. He wasn't in the last few units because he wasn't available. But they mention him. Yeah. You know. I like the units. I've enjoyed the new units. Yeah. I enjoy mo- I enjoy most anything. I'm I'm all for expanded universe. I was I it's my you know friend asked one time are you on the spe- do you think you're on the spectrum? Would you ever take a test? I said I don't need a test. <laughs> okay, I'm sick. I'm over six years old. We didn't have tests. I, yeah, I would think I'm probably a little bit autistic because I made li- you know list making and um, wanting to know you know the kind of the. OCD toward fandom and the collecting part is my wife goes, do you think that's it? Cause yeah, I think it's a bit of, I think it's a little, I think it's like um, ADHD or OCD, you know, a lot of nerd, I think a lot of fans, I don't want to say nerds, but a lot of fans are like that. I'm a sports yeah. fan and sports fans are like that with the nut math. Baseball's math. Mm-hmm. It's all about the math. So, um, you know, I, um, I'm all for the expanded. I, I mean, I've been listening to big finish since the first one. So I mean, I'm excited. I was excited when they got him. I'll be excited when they get Matt. I'm a huge Matt fan. I'm like, that will make me happy. Yeah. And I'd like to see Capaldi. I think Capaldi could, you know, I think they'll all end up doing it. They all need to pay for their, yeah. It will do. It'll be interesting because this one's going back to three consecutive stories rather than three standalone so these three are linked oh, right. so a bit like and the, the second set was three standalones wasn't yeah, it yeah it was yeah. it was three standalones on the second one whereas this seems to be a continuing story okay well that's through. a good way to bookend it yeah uh, I, yeah roy gill's done the two last parts so uh some of his work's been really good so looking forward to that yeah Terrific. Uh, if you just want to let our listeners know about your other podcasts and where, where we can find you on the internet. All right. Well, you can find, okay, I've got three podcasts, two doctors, Gallifrey's Most Wanted. You can find us at Gallifrey's Most Wanted, a doctor podcast on Facebook or at Gallifrey's MW Pod. And then Runcible Report is on a bit of hiatus because Jeff's got um, important stuff to do and 
We'll be back soon, and we'll, that's the Runcible Report, and that's at, at Runcible Report. And a few months ago, I started a comic book podcast because that's my first nerd love called Stop, Let's Team Up. It's about superhero teams uh, because that's the kind of comics that I loved. And um, as this morning, I just released one on a comic called Strange Academy, which is Doctor Strange starts a school, and it's kind of like Buffy meets Doctor Strange meets Hogwarts, and it was a lot of fun. So if you could check that out at stop um, at JSA4E, that's JSA, the letters and the number 4E, um, or on YouTube, because that is my first foray into YouTube podcasting, and it's at stop, let's team up. Cool, definitely check those out. Brilliant, yeah, and uh, I am on Twitter, Jixter2009, and uh, I have a weekly YouTube um, review that comes out with uh, the boys from Phantom Films. So at Phantom Films on Twitter, um, we have been reviewing every single season of Doctor Who, the classic era. So uh, wow. yeah, you can you can hear us talking about our memories or lack thereof, depending on how old the stories were, uh, and a bit of banter as well around each one. So, uh, yeah, that's on YouTube. That's great. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, and thank you very much for listening at home. Goodbye. <laughs>